actually the last resort to let someone go. First of all, I'm like, check them out. Do the cognitive profiles, do the affective profiles, do the cognitive profiles, and then see if you can't place them elsewhere where they can actually thrive and make a big difference. And where they're a D player over here, they could be an A player here. If you've got a good person with a good heart and a good brain, then let's look at you know how they're showing up. Where could that be a fit in your organization? Hello and welcome to The Melting Pot. I'm your host, Dominic Monkhouse. The Melting Pot is a result of my hunger and curiosity for optimizing business performance, exploring corporate culture, customer addiction, and building high-performing teams. It's full of advice from my guests, entrepreneurs, fellow business authors, and examples from some of my work over the last few years, coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoyed the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter, you can pick up a copy of my new book, Plan B, How to Scale Your Technology Business Faster and Achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Shannon Waller. It is very rare that I meet somebody who spent the best part of their working lives in one organization, but Shannon has, and it's obvious that she still loves it. She works with Bab Smith and Daniel Sullivan at Strategic Coach. She joined Strategic Coach in 1991, and she says she built a sales team, grew out of that, done some other things. We talk a bit about unique ability, which is this concept that, I suppose it's a feelings model. If you're doing work that puts you in flow, then that by its definition is that you are in your unique ability. And so she has learned and developed and, and continues to work in her unique ability at Strategic Coach. She developed and runs their 10x workshop. She's written a couple of books, Team Success Handbook and Multiplication by Subtraction. And she loves assessments. So we talk a little bit about DISC and Colby, and we talk a little bit about Working Genius. Gallup Strengths gets a mention. And we talk about teams. That's really the, that's where she's focused. She's built the team training program. So every entrepreneur has their unique ability and is only able to succeed if they're supported by a team. Often the team is good at the things that the entrepreneur is not. And so strategic planning and organization and project management. And so she teaches that to the teams of entrepreneurs so they can do the things that they're great at. They can live in their unique ability. And that's the purpose of her books. The Team Success Handbook is about how do teams do that and multiplication by subtraction. We talk about A players and how you need to build an amazing team, how how exit is not the first port of call, but the last resort. And how do you get people to be A players by shifting some things around? I had a great time chatting to Shannon. I could absolutely have talked to her all day. Maybe that is because our Colby scores are very similar, or maybe it's because we both are entrepreneurs and have a passion for team development. But I really enjoy talking to Shannon. I'm looking forward to meeting up with her in person soon. I'm sure you'll enjoy our conversation. Hi, Shannon Waller here. Thrilled to be here, Dominic. Thank you so much for having me. I work with Strategic Coach. I joined the company in July of 1991. So yes, that's been a while. 
I created the team programs, I coach our 10X workshops, and I'm also Dan Sullivan's creative collaborator with our Inside Strategic Coach podcast and our quarterly books. I'm also Babs' strategic partner and a leader in the company. So there's a little bit about me. Fabulous. It's fantastic to have you on. For those people who don't know, what is Strategic Coach? Strategic Coach is a, it's really a community of phenomenal entrepreneurs. It's based around our quarterly workshop program that really we were just talking about our mission, values, purpose yesterday. And our whole reason for being is to expand entrepreneurial success, freedom, and happiness. That is our reason for being on the planet. And so we've got an incredible year-long program that's based on the four workshops, lots of ways to connect in between, where Dan put it this way one day. He said, coach is really about unique concepts, so unique ways of thinking about your business, unique conversations with yourself and others within a unique community. And I was like, yeah, that pretty much describes the whole strategic coach experience. So that's who we are. And we work with successful, talented, ambitious, creative, and collaborative entrepreneurs who want to have a much bigger future and have even more fun doing it. That's kind of the bottom line. Well, it, I've been in coach for about 12 months and it's been it's been fantastic. I was introduced by a fellow coach, scaling up coach, Ethan Martin, and he'd been talking at me about coach for a long time. And then I one day I randomly said, oh, I'm joining this thing called strategic coach. And he said, I've been telling you about this for years. And it's just one of those things where he was speaking and I wasn't listening. And then eventually I'd forgotten that he'd been drip feeding me about the whole thing for ages. I was with him in Santa Monica with Chad on Tuesday. Fab, how do you like the podcast with Dan? Oh my gosh, I love it. I love it. I love it once I figured out how to structure it, <laughs> to be honest. So Dan's, Dan is a modern day philosopher. And I, when I went to university, I could not figure out what the heck I wanted to take. And so what did I major in my first year? Philosophy. Now, Dan's version, bottom line, practical, how to take action. That's much more my style, I'll be honest. But he just knows how to think about things. He has a great expression. He said, the problem is never the problem. The problem is not knowing how to think about the problem. And so Dan's take on things is so consistent. I mean, I've, I've worked with him for 30, almost 32 years. I'm, we're friends, you know, our Dan and Babs and my husband and myself are friends. We're friends. We hang out. We go for dinner. We, they have a cottage that they bought a couple doors down from us. And, but I just love his brain. How he approaches things is a blast. And so I'll pick up how the process is. I'll be in a workshop with them or, a two hour connection session or something, dinner, and he'll say something. I'm like, mm, I want to explore that. So I put it in my little Trello board. And then I'm, he's like, okay, Shan, what should we talk about? I'm like, okay, these are the things you said recently that I thought were interesting. And then we just go from there. And then he just talks. Yeah. So, and I do have, I ask him, why is it important? And then how can people take action? So I always help bring it down to the practical. It's a blast. I love it. It's one of the most fun things I do. And I know it's not my imagination, but most of the people I've met in coach like you have been there for forever. So, I mean, I don't mean that. I mean, it's from a perspective of admiration because mostly today people get have multiple jobs and there's no sense of a job for life. But, you know, the team in the UK and then the team that I met in North America this week, 20, 25 years, people are in coach for long. It's extremely unusual. And because normally it's three to five years tops, right? And people are job hopping and they're looking for new places. And I've given some thought to why, and it kind of, it's not for everybody. Not everyone stays for 20, 25 years or 30 
one and a half, almost 32 in my case. <laughs> but unique ability is really what it boils down to. So one of the things is a core value of our organization, well, we call it positive and collaborative teamwork. And that means, but it's also based on what you love to do and do best. So we are actively looking to reinforce your strengths. We do a ton of profiles in our hiring. Our hiring process is not fast, right? So we profile, we use Colby, we use, we we'll often use DISC, we do a cognitive profile because we want to know you. And then as soon as you're hired, we have a bunch more. We do print, we do Clifton Strengths, we do all the things because we want to know you. We want you to know you. Know thyself is one of my number one value system values. And so, and then to lean into that, to explore that, to expand your impact with doing what you love to do and do best because it requires far less management. It's much more about leadership and providing direction. We don't have to micromanage people. People aren't unhappy. They look forward to coming work. It's a very collegial environment. Like we like each other. We hang out. We go for, people go for drinks. We hug each other. Like it's a very friendly place to be and it's warm and it's receptive and it's positive. And then if you think about what a team member is looking for, they want to do meaningful work in a great environment with other great, frankly, high-performing people. And if you're fairly well compensated, why would you leave? So I've got, what proportion do you think of the team at Coach would be enthusiastically rehired again tomorrow? Oh my goodness. What a great question. I would say, actually, it's very high. Enthusiastically rehired, I think I would be at least 85, 90%. So that gets to my definition. When you were describing what how people show up, you know, it's sort of Lencioni calls them the ideal team player. I talk about A players, that top 10% of available talent. And, you know, if people are doing what their unique ability is, they are five to 10 times more productive. So paying them a good salary, but you're not having to manage them. But a client here recently, and after two days, they sat there and here's a list of challenges they have to overcome. And the CEO said to the team, and look back at the talent assessment that we'd done on day one, he said, if all of our team were A players, how many of these things would still be a challenge? And they sat and they looked at them and they, the team sort of one by one nodded and went, none of these things would be on the list. That was a team where they reckoned only 10% of their organization were A players. But, you know, when I start working with clients, it's typically not more than a third. Really? Yeah. That's terrifying. That would feel like trying to move ahead and dragging very heavy weights behind you. That's like doing the most intense workout or those horrible things in gyms where you have to push or pull, but like trying to make progress and make success. But there's so much friction and drag in the situation that you described. That's first of all, terrifying, but, and it's interesting though, what I've found, and I don't know if you have too, and you're, I, I love that we're so similar in, in our thinking and approaches to teams, entrepreneurial teams, is that often you could have an A player if you knew them better, if they accepted their strengths and moved them to a different position, they could actually be much, I mean, my, not accounting for mindset. Mindset is everything. They need to have an entrepreneurial attitude. But I found quite often like, and we used to do this a lot. We'd hire people into a role and we didn't have all the tools and profiles we have now. But then eventually, if we were just open to it, we placed someone and then they would just thrive. And so, it, and I actually, we were talking about this earlier. I wrote a book called Multiplication by Subtraction because I got frustrated with the wrong fit people <laughs> being in companies. But it's actually the last resort to let someone go. First of all, I'm like, check them out. Do the cognitive profiles, do the affective profiles, do the cognitive profiles, and then see if you can't place them elsewhere where they can actually thrive and make a big difference. And where they're a D player over here, they could be an A player here. Like, I think that's 
if you've got a good person with a good heart and a good brain, then let's look at, you know, how they're showing up. Where could that be a fit in your organization? And then if it's not, then you let them go. But I just think people look at it in a very kooky way. I think when I speak to people, they are immediately jumping to the fact that I've said, if this doesn't work out, we've got to let them go. And they're reacting or reeling from the idea of letting them go. But I say, look, Football teams often change manager and have a string of better results. So maybe they're working for the wrong person. Maybe the organization's got big and their roles just expanded beyond their scope. We had one team manager in a client company and he was rated a B. His team were Bs and Cs. He'd been promoted to a manager because he was a sole contributor before. He had no skills and capability or support to sort his team out. Once his, actually, once his team were made up of mainly As, he was actually an A. He could lead a team of As. He just had never been trained or helped or facilitated to get the team to the point where he could actually lead them. So as you say, it feels like your description of it pulling this heavy weight and it's like running through treacle. It's just, you know, and, you know, work with clients and sort of, I love the title of your book, Multiplication by Subtraction. I just, it is that it just, the metabolic rate of the organization goes up and then stays up. So what are the, what are some of the things in that book that you've, that are sort of timeless truths? Well, first of all, your team needs to have an entrepreneurial attitude if you're an entrepreneurial organization. So that is absolutely essential. And these are quick, so I'll just read them out. So the mindset is, and these are hab- these are success habits, they're mindsets, they're, I call them attitudes. So create value, take initiative, focus on results, not just the time and effort required to get there. Have an ownership attitude, be in alignment. If people are not in alignment with the role, the job, the project, or the company, why are you there? Be a partner. That's huge. In other words, acknowledge and recognize your strengths and the other person's strengths and connect. I was actually coaching one of our team members on this because she was being too subservient, not the word, but she was putting this other person's talents and capabilities on a pedestal. And she's incredibly capable herself, but she wasn't speaking up enough. Finally, she did. But it was like, be a partner. Do not just be a little peon. That makes no sense. Take action. Don't always wait. I'm not into passivity, as you can probably tell. Be open, communicate, learn how to handle strong emotions because they're endemic in an entrepreneurial world. We feel like if we're excited, people know. And if we're not, people know. Have patience and compassion. And number 12, don't give up. So those are pretty timeless. And then in multiplication by subtraction, I actually was, well, what provoked me? I wasn't provoked, but what provoked me was I met with one of my clients whom I really enjoyed, really like, and he showed up with his you know, second in command. And I could just tell that guy was completely paying me lips, like just, it was all lip service. He was saying the right things, meant none of it. And after that first meeting, I went back to my client, again, whom I really liked. I'm like, I didn't say dude, but I'm like, this person is not who you think he is. And he's not behind this. He's just saying stuff. He goes, oh no, it's great, blah, blah, blah. So we went, worked together, all the things. Two years later, after the guy had ownership, after he had a ton of clients, he said, you know what you said two years ago? He said, you were right. I'm like, I know. Why didn't you listen to me then? It was very expensive to, to separate from that. So that frustrated me because I saw really wonderful entrepreneurs having people on their team whose goal was to build their own kingdom, not for the service of the, in the service of the company. And that ticked me off enough to write a book. Plus, Dan's a fan of writing books and I love books and I read them. So a couple of things that I really enjoyed, my favorite part of the book is page 34, 35, and it's a whole chart of symptoms and the resulting cost. And I like to have fun with things. So I'm like, you know, the word zombie comes up once or twice, drama queen or king. (laughs) 
<laughs> is one of them. Lack of integrity, having an entitlement attitude, arrogance, aka God's gift to your company, not adaptable. Those are some of the symptoms. So I quite enjoy that. And then there's the level of difficulty because letting someone go that you've just hired, somewhat painful, but it's like a paper cut. You know, letting someone go who's been with your company for decades, maybe as long as you, but that is no longer right fit the legacy people. And in family businesses, this is pretty common. Those are the hard ones. That's a level six out of five in terms of difficulty. And these situations are still happening. So those are some of the things that I've found to be ongoingly true. That's brilliant. Are they on Audible or do I have to read them, read them? They're absolutely on Audible. They're perfect. print on demand. You can do all the things. And it's kind of, I mean, Team Success Handbook is actually written for your team members. It should feel like I wrote this on your behalf. Aha, perfect. A book to give to new starters. Oh, yeah. And you're in coach. So we've got the Team Success video series. This is what my podcast started off as being. So the Team Success podcast, so all the things. You have lots of resources at your disposal. One of the things that I find constantly frustrating, I think it's a small business mindset thing. Maybe you can give me some insight into it. It's this concept where a small business entrepreneur has got a great employee and instead of hiring somebody better, they hire somebody a bit shitter and a bit cheaper. And then they create this soup mess that they're in that they then have to manage through. What's behind that mindset? Do you think you must have seen that before? It often comes from a sense of scarcity. I mean, if someone's an A player and they're hiring a B player, it's a bit messed up. And B players tend to hire B players. <laughs> so it's one of the things you want to be careful of. But I th- what I do find is that people are looking at other humans. We call it in coach vernacular. We talk about who, not how. They hire other talent from a mindset of being a cost as opposed to an investment. And that's dangerous because if anyone's ever had a, a job, a job, and they you, you were treated as a cost, which is how it's recorded financially in your statements, right? But you could, what do we try, all try and do with costs in our business? Well, we treat it like a commodity and we try and minimize them. If you've ever been felt like you've been minimized in a job, you know exactly how crappy that feels, right? And that, and you actually bring out the worst. You don't bring out the best in people. When you look at this in, as an investment, you are willing to probably be more discerning, pay more, have higher standards and criteria. And then like any investment, you work to make it grow. You do that financially. In fact, we invest far more financially with far less oversight than we do with someone that we put on our team. Every two weeks can, you know, impact how successful that person is or coach them or give them feedback. And But we have our criteria for evaluation is much tougher. So if we simply were to look at team members as investments, not costs, that's a major mindset shift, which will all of a sudden mean that you are looking at things from the right way. I think you're right. There's a thing there which says, if this is a cost, I feel begrudgingly having to hire somebody. And also, I probably don't, if it's an investment, then I probably work out in advance how I measure the impact of that investment. So I've actually got in my head the start of a, maybe a performance management conversation that I might have with this person, or at least I've got a sense of why I'm hiring them and what the out, what good looks like. Exactly. Sometimes we resent costs, like a necessary evil or cost of doing business, all the things. And that's always been a negative. And I think that's true for anything that can be commoditized in a business, but that's not people. So we, what we do is we, what they do is they're hiring somebody. It's the cheapest way to solve the problem because they're looking at it as cost minimization. Yep. Okay. You said who, not how. So maybe we should drill into that. And what's that? 
No, it's the title of a book, but it's also, there's a whole concept we could talk about there. Who Not How is so powerful. It's it, what's really great. And so we, Dan writes a small quarterly book and then he's got a collaboration with Ben Hardy, Dr. Benjamin Hardy now, who is brilliant at writing mass market books. And so he's taken this book and just added the stories and added all the additional things that, that Dan would not. And it's magic. So Who Not How, the whole point behind it is that when you are taking on a new project, a new task that you don't know how to do, and you're trying to figure out the how, there's an immediate, if you didn't, if you knew how to do it, you already would be doing it. So there's all of a sudden you're at the bottom of the learning curve, it's de-energizing, and you're like, ugh, how am I going to do this? And then who not how is, instead of asking yourself, how do I do it? Who do I know? that knows how to do it? Or how can I find a who who knows how to do it? And that is transformative. And then all of a sudden your future can become so much bigger because it's not just limited to your own capabilities, to your own unique ability. Now all of a sudden you can see how, and then you become a much better partner because then you get good at collaborating with other people who are talented in areas that you're not and you're talented in areas that they're not. And that's the essence of who, not how. And it's it is, it's, and it looks very different than regular delegation, if that makes sense, because you're actually looking for someone who is better at it than you are. You're looking for someone who is even more capable. Always. Maybe they love it more than you. Yeah, they have. Well, that, that makes them better. Makes them better to do it all the time. I mean, there are things that I do that I'm quite good at. I would try very hard to pay somebody else to do it. There are also things I love to do that I'm not great at. I was going to say cutting the grass, but, uh, but, Often you want somebody to love doing it and they might not, they might be, but they don't necessarily, they need to be good enough to want to do it at that high level forever, or at least for a period of time. What you're really talking about here is a distinction that we make in coach between excellent abilities and unique abilities. So the whole model is incompetent. When you put in the time and effort, you do not get the results. <laughs> so dancing and anything musical. There you go. Done. For some people, it's boiling water. And even though I'm fairly handy, anything to do with cars, changing tires, it's just not my... I once put the jack underneath the car, upside down. Ah, and then went, what am I doing? Stop. Don't ever do that again. Thankfully, my husband was close by. He knew what he was doing. And again, but I'm handy, but just not in that particular regard. So, and anything to do with numbers, well, not numbers, anything to do with organizational systems, I'm just pretty much allergic. So yeah, anything. I can do inventory, just not accurate inventory. <laughs> That sort of thing. So incompetent and then competent is you're adequate, you're okay, but so are a lot of other people. So there's a lot of competition. Not my fave, I'd rather just win. And then excellent is where you have superior skill. You are better at it than most people. And there's a lot of great teamwork, reputation, often great pay, but it doesn't excite you. And that this leads to not burnout, but brownout. People just get kind of worn down. And there's something we call, and we wrote about this in our book, Unique Ability 2.0 Discovery, is that it, you get kind of, people get stuck and they get stuck in industries like investment banking and they do it because it pays really well. But it, if it doesn't feed them, you know, at least in New York, they go and buy a farm in Connecticut or something. <laughs> and then there's unique ability. And this is where you have superior skill and passion. You love it. Your eyes light up. You lean in and you kind of can't not do it in some ways. And you keep getting better at it. You add your skills, you add your capabilities, you add your experience, and you refine your audience. It's the other part of, of unique ability. And that's what you want. So when you have superior skill and passion, you know, and you're a hero to other people, you're having a big impact. It's actually like jumping into the jet stream. 
And you go so much faster, but it's easy. That's what unique ability feels like. And we tend to take it for granted because it feels like, can everyone do this? And you and then you look around and you're like, oh, no, they really can't. And it, and who knows what that is? It's very individual to each person. But once you figure it out, it's magic. And there's a McKinsey study that looks at, they describe that as being in flow. So they say executives who are in flow are five times more productive So they'll do 500% more work on Monday than the people who are just competent. And we were talking before we were recording about Patrick Lencioni's new tool, Working Genius. And so as you were talking there about competency and people being typecast, one of the things that he talks about in the book is that he said he was the person who would galvanize the team. And then they do the tool and it turns out that galvanize for him is only a competency. And they said, well, we thought you loved this. And he's like, no, it's just that nobody else does it. For everybody else, it's a frustration. So you all kept giving it to me to do. And frankly, I'd rather never do it again. I'd rather somebody else did it. And so people get stuck in, you know, there's a skill that they've got, there's sort of a learned behavior. Often it becomes their job. Years ago, when I was working for Glaxo selling to general practitioners in the UK. I'd meet these people who spent seven years at medical school because they were good at passing exams, got to medical school, and then they turned out they just hated spending all day talking to 65-year-old incontinent ladies. It just wasn't what, they'd, what they had dreamed their life would be. And But they'd spent seven years doing it and they were just stuck, couldn't get out. And we have such a bias towards the cognitive, to the mental, the thinking capabilities, and people override their interests and their instincts. And it, it's a shame. And because, and so unique ability for me lines up three ways. One is intellectually, whatever you're pursuing is of interest to you. So I'm, I've always, since I was 18, loved people in business. That's my jam. 40 years later, I'm still doing it, <laughs> which is really, so the intellectually, and then it has to be something you care about. So you have to be interested in it and then have the brain to do something about it. You have to care about it. If I didn't care about people in business, I would not have pursued this, right? So there's that passion part. And then how you strive and problem solve, and we measure this through Colby, which is the, I think the only validated instrument that does that. It's K-O-L-B-E.com. And then that's how you strive. When you can line those three things up, you have a healthy, happy, contributing productive, internally aligned human being. Like that's just a healthy, happy human in in my books. It's rare. And then to find an environment where you can encourage that and then collect people, that's even more unusual. Talk to me a bit about Colby. So for those people who don't know what it is. Colby isn't, so it's a psychometric profile. It is not a test. You cannot fail. Very important to know that. Maybe there's some other tests you can fail, but it's not this one. So what Colby measures is your mental energy, how it plays out. And it's incredibly predictive. It's got phenomenal validity. It does not measure personality, nor does it measure intelligence. So you can be intelligent or not, passionate or not, and it will still (laughs) give you the accurate answer. But it does say that when you are motivated, when you are striving, how you will take action. And the four different modes are fact finder. This is how you analyze and how you collect information. Follow through, how you arrange and design. Quick start is your instinct for risk and uncertainty. And then implementer, which is interesting, is how you handle space and tangibles. A lot of people think of implementer as following through on projects. That's actually follow through in the Colby system. So implementer is how you handle implements So just to give you a quick, hopefully fun story. So mine, I'm a three in fact finder out of 10, a two in follow through out of 10. And those are strengths. They're not just weaknesses in case you're wondering. Nine quick start, 
and five implementer. So my pandemic lockdown hobby that I picked up a couple summers ago, because we have a vacation property, is I bought myself a battery operated cordless chainsaw because I don't like the dead limbs on my oak trees. They bother me. And my husband was not particularly helpful. Love him, but that was, <laughs> he did not want me having a chainsaw. So I went and got my own. Didn't like his, his wouldn't start. And so I've become fairly proficient at using a chainsaw and cleaning up my property and my friend's properties. And it's a blast. Tree lady. I love it. And you can't really focus on doing anything else when you're doing doing chainsaw. I cut up a tree that, three trees that have fallen on a friend's driveway last weekend. It was a blast. And fortunately, Bruce will help me. He'll like move the limbs and do stuff I can't do, but it's awesome. So, but that's, I mean, that's quirky, right? But it totally makes sense when you know Colby profile. Not that everyone with a five implementer picks up a chainsaw, but there you go. So that's, it, it's interesting. It just, what Colby measures is how you will take action. So initially someone who's an aid and fact finder, you know, they're going to do that deep dive into the specifics. Their mental energy for research could be talking to people, could be Googling, could be going to the library, who knows, is they have a lot. They have a lot of room for collecting the specifics and the detail and for complexity, which is a cool capability. Follow-throughs can create order out of chaos if you initiate in that way. Quick starts, incredible instinct for risk. Implementers have a great sense of the space and tangible. They'll see where things are risky. And then the short is also kind of fun. So you and I are both fairly short on follow-through. You might think that's a weakness. And if you have to follow through on a lot of things, you like, you want to find a who for that, just saying. Tells you about your teamwork really fast, which is why one reason why I love it. But it also means you're incredibly adaptable. Things weren't lined up some of the things that you thought were going to be there in the morning or the afternoon to do the podcast or to do a speech or do a, a you know work with a team, great. You're like, oh, instead of this, I'll use that. Instead of that, I'll use this. And then you can make the event happen. No problem. Very adaptable. I mean, I hadn't thought about it like that as a strength, but that's very good. I Certainly the quick start and not being able to explain why your perception of risk is what it is. It's that you know, you'd get marked down when your maths homework for not showing you're working out. One of my top five on Gallup strengths is strategic, which is sort of similar. You see a pattern in the data and you just jump to the end, forgetting completely that nobody else can see the pattern, only you. And unless you bring them on the journey, you lose them. It's my second strength as well. And it's a mystery to me. It's like, it's interesting because I'll hear ideas from, could be Babs, could be Dan, could be somebody else. And I'll sort through them like, no, no, yes right? And then I'll just ignore the other ideas that have been talked about that other people are still considering. To me, they just don't make sense. And I'll be going like, we're not going to do that. We're going to do this. And then I'll be like, oh dear, no one else knows that. Nobody made that decision. You've just moved ahead without them. And then they think you're not interested and you're not listening. And And unfortunately, I'm often right. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yes. Like, I know that so-and-so said this, but they're not actually going to do it. I know this is what's actually going to happen. Here's how we should approach it. And they're like, what? I'm like, don't worry. Fortunately, it works out, but it's terrifying for them. I think it's, you find early on in life, you just realize that you can fly by the seat of your pants. And because you haven't fallen out of the made-up airplane in your head, you just keep going. Can I tell you a quick funny story about this? So I was excellent. In my previous role at Strategic Coach, I was in sales. Did very well, had my own sales team, but I thought my brain was starting to rust. And so I went back to school and I came, that was a training and design certificate program at one of our universities here in Toronto. And so, but I had to give a presentation and fortunately I was delayed to the next one. So doing things at the last minute is very much a nine quick start thing. And so my professor who actually happened to be a client, that's how I'd found out about this program. She's okay, Shannon, it's your turn. And I had, I'm with a bunch of HR managers. Okay. And they had like printed foam boards and color and handouts for the class. 
I had nothing. And I'm walking to the front of the room, squaring under my breath, like, because <laughs> I couldn't figure out how to present my idea. I did have an idea. And it was for actually a one-day workshop for teams, team members of our clients. And so, but finally my quick start kicked in and I turned around and I said, you're all entrepreneurs making over a hundred thousand dollars a year that got their attention. And I proceeded to sell them my one day training program for their teams. And it worked. And then I got like an A minus on it. And the only comment was, could have really benefited from some handouts. And I was like, well, no kidding. (laughs) But that was the day where I really learned to trust my quick start. Would I recommend that? No, it was slightly terrifying. But I learned that my quick start is something I could lean on. I could count on it. It would come up and rescue me. I did know what I was talking about, but I hadn't figured out the right way because I couldn't have figured out how to turn this audience into the audience that I needed. Then I figured out how to do it and I sold it to them and I got a great grade. But it was funny. That was when I figured it out. What grade would you've been happy with? Oh, well... I don't think anything less than what I got is what I would have been happy with. Maybe a B plus, but it had to be an A something. And did you get the highest grade in the class? No. No. Although a lot of people, interesting, kept blowing off the deadline. So Quick Start's creativity kicks in at the last minute. That's one of the defining hallmarks of Quick Start. And they kept blowing the deadline and the professor marked them zero. She says, if you're in a business situation, you can't just keep pushing the deadline that this is, you need to treat this as a business thing. And so they were mad because they didn't respect the deadline. So as you know, I've got high quick start as well. And there was something which I read, which for me then became life-changing, which was this idea of deliberate procrastination. Mm. So instead of spending eight hours in a day not quite doing a thing and getting to the end of the day and you still haven't done it, but you haven't done anything else either. I now say, I trust my quick start. If I give myself a deadline, I can do something else for the whole day. So then I go and do something else for the whole day, which is nothing to do with it. So I can't actually think about it and then still manage to get it done. And maybe I'm happy with a B plus, but I didn't put any effort in. This is my deliberate procrastination today. I need to edit something. (laughs) And March 31st is the day. (laughs) Perfect. That's what deadlines are for. It is, it's happened so many times. And now because I work with entrepreneurs, you work with entrepreneurs, it, it, and when we first met Kathy Colby, she actually called us up because we learned about it through a client of ours. And she called us up because she's never seen so many 10 quick starts before. We know more 10 quick starts than Kathy Colby does because that's our population. That's with whom we work. And so it's in the entrepreneurial world, this is not unusual. And I think, I mean, I said to you before, One of the reasons why I coach entrepreneurial CEOs is because of this type of dynamic. And they think to themselves, I need somebody else to run my company because I, you know, I'm not a grown up. I'm not preparing for meetings. I don't turn up on time. And it's like, you just need other people to do that. You just need a who. You don't need to have a personality transplant. You don't need to be embarrassed. I had a CEO who was, had two CEO coaches to be a better CEO. And I'm like, And I knew him and he had our profile and he always kind of, he didn't have as much education as he thought he needed, didn't have an MBA. And I was like, but what are you unique at? And he's a brilliant guy. And we finally distilled it down to a couple of conversations, one on the way to the workshop room doors and the other one on a phone call later. And he goes, I love the client experience and I love structuring that client experience. So we both came up with the term, the client experience architect. Then that's who he became. Totally liberated him from all the stuff. That's what the team knew to count on him for because he was stuck with everyone expecting him to do the C, the traditional CEO role for which he was not suited. 
He had two coaches when he was paying probably a fortune and he was just trying to contort himself into somebody he wasn't. And it was actually diminishing his genius and what he was superb at because he was brilliant. And so when we finally freed him up and he could, he's, and then he sent me, I was so honored. He sent me his, he took a picture of the box, but he sent me a, a, his new business card that was chief experience architect. I was like, we, I've had clients move into innovation, chief innovation officer, and have somebody else run the business. I love unique ability titles that actually reflect someone's unique ability. Reception is, is a very commoditized term. Director of first impressions, that is meaningful. My favorite title from the founder of Joe Boxer, so the crazy underpants company, was chief underpants officer. <laughs> like, first of all, how on brand. Yeah. <laughs> so I can handle C-suite titles only when they are unique ability. Otherwise, they become bureaucratic and too much role-based, not unique ability. And I think it takes people in the wrong direction. Fab. Shannon, what is it you know now you wish you'd known earlier? Well, this is what's been striking me the last month or so. And Dan has an expression. He said, take your own experience seriously. And I've been realizing that I need to take myself a little bit more seriously, which sounds odd, but I realize there's times in my life where I wish I had, how do I explain this well? Like I, my motto when I had kids was have kids will travel. And I did, I traveled with them a lot, but there's also a lot of times I traveled without them. And I think I wish I'd realized that my presence, even if I wasn't doing anything, actually mattered more than I gave it a credit to. So I, I kind of, when I'm, what I wish I know now is that my presence matters. Even if I'm not doing anything, just me being is actually, at least for my family, really important, which sounds a little naive when I say it out. But I wish I'd had that realization sooner. And I think it still will be incredibly useful moving forward. I need to take myself, my contribution, whatever you want to call it, even more seriously than I do now. Don't dismiss things, which I, is interesting, but that's kind of the little personal quandary I'm in right now. So when I, you gave me a heads up about this question. I'm like, I have a weird answer for that. And that's my answer right now. That's brilliant. Thank you. And we, we mentioned your books, Team Success Handbook and Multiplication by Subtraction. You also mentioned Unique Ability 2.0. Yeah. So this is, we wrote Unique Ability book years ago, and then we redid it even a little bit more recently. And my main the main authors on that are Catherine Nomura and Julia Waller, my sister. And Julia created this incredible workbook that you can coach yourself. She's our unique ability coach one-on-one. And she wrote this workbook that's like her sitting down in a cafe and coaching you. It's the coolest. But I, yes, I have a small contribution to that. But I highly recommend it. If you want to do that deep dive, we recommend Colby. We recommend Clifton Strengths. I didn't know about Working Genius back then. It what didn't, had, didn't exist, but it I would highly recommend that one too. And what, what else? I have so many what else's. It's not even funny. So yeah, so I have a recommended book list that I make available to my clients. It's on yourteamsuccess.com. I think it's under Goodreads or something like that. We'll find it and put it in the show notes. Yeah, it's, I keep it updated. But my last couple that I found fascinating, one of them is called Driven by Douglas Brackman. And it actually was recommended to me by Kelly Knight, who is the integrator for, for EOS Worldwide, EOS's Entrepreneurial Operating System. And then also Gina Wickman, recommended it too. And may, maybe that's even where Kelly got it from. I'm not sure. Anyway, it is, wow. It actually talks about ADHD. It talks about being driven. It talks about that kind of entrepreneurial gene. Recommends one of the books, my favorite early books about ADHD by Tom Hartman, which is AD, A Different Perception. 
which really means you're a hunter in a farmer's world, which is an awesome context around how we strive. And that's been proven out anthropologically now. So that's one of my favorite books. Another one by my friend Nick Sonnenberg called Come Up for Air, how teams can leverage systems and tools to stop drowning in work and avoid the scavenger hunt. And especially as we go into a much more mobile, digital, work from anywhere world, having the right systems and how to think about that without just drowning in the, is it Slack? Is it chat? Is it email? Is it text? Is it this? Is it that? Is huge. So he's incredibly wise about that. Yeah. So those are kind of some two couple of my favorites at the moment. I also love Radical Candor by Kim Scott. You and I were chatting about that too. Yeah. I like reading a lot of different things. Shannon, thank you very much indeed for those recommendations. I When I first, the first I think we're 254 episodes now, something like that. But when we started, five people listened. And if nobody listened, I would still do it because it's great to chat to you. It's great to get book recommendations because I managed to get through a couple of books a week normally. And and it's great to spend my time listening or reading to things that are change my perspective. And so I'm looking forward to coming up for air because systems and processes are not my thing. And so, and so something like that, I'm looking forward to getting my way through that because it'll just, it will force me to think differently, I'm sure. It will. And he tells it in a very compelling way with great stories. And, you know, there's, he tells it in a very interesting way. So it's not hard for you or I to get through. But I have to tell you, once you're done, hand it to your team, they will eat it up for breakfast. They're like, oh my gosh, this is the best book ever because they're seeing the dangers. They're experiencing those roadblocks. They're getting, they're experiencing the scavenger hunt and they're like, yes. So give it to someone else to implement. That's because they're all enablement tenacity. They're down at 500 feet and it's lovely up here at 25,000 feet where I live. Yeah, that's where I like hanging out too. So I have no challenges. <laughs> oh, and the other book would be Working Genius. I and mean, I'm sure you've talked about it before in your podcast, but that book, oh my God, I'm a huge fan of anything Patrick Lencioni, but I... It's magical because that profile, and I've been making some of my team members do it, including Bab Smith, which is the co-founder of the company, which is kind of fun because I'm, it's the only teamwork profile I've found. I'm a profile junkie. I do a lot. But this is the only one that actually talk, puts people into that bigger perspective of what's the flow of a project, which, you know, in terms of how things happen. So that one also is revolutionizing my brain. Yeah, no, I like that a lot. As we were going virtual in COVID and as Table Group published that in beta, I was an early adopter and early got early certified. I just had problems with teams that I wanted some insight into and it gave me immediate insight into, you know, once we'd worked out what this team were going to do together, it's like, why is it not working? And it just helped us diagnose for some teams where their challenge would be or how they could be deliberate about backfilling gaps in the team. Yeah, I rolled it out to a team that I'm working with, marketing, and we and one person was galvanizing. Goes, oh my gosh, this explains so much. And he at this point in his role as a podcast manager, he is galvanizing the external people, but not internal. And then we just hired a new guy in social media, and he's got galvanizing. I'm like, oh hallelujah, this is great, right? It's like you can fill in the gaps in another way, but it also it, when people know how to place themselves for effectiveness, regardless of their role status. It is so empowering and the whole team just clicks up a new level instantly. That's pretty sweet. I'm all about that. I feel like I could chat to you all day. So thank you for giving me your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you. 
Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. If you'd be kind enough to leave a review, it will really help other like-minded entrepreneurs find this podcast and grow our community. For all information relating to this episode, you can go to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast, where you'll find some cracking show notes, additional reading and links relating to our guest. There you can also find my blog and past episodes of my subjectively not crap newsletter, where I'll update you on the best articles I read that week, some recommended books and other podcasts. Thanks, and I will see you next week.